0: Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. I'm your host, Hannah MacDonald, and I'm hopefully your new bookish pal. Welcome to our December bonus books special. We are featuring the brilliant romantic comedy, The Man of Her Dreams, by Sarah Manning. Described by Marianne Keyes as a very special book, and by previous podcast, Daisy Buchanan, as light, dark, sweet, sour, sexy, funny, and so real, I could not agree more with the both of them, as this is a book that I read in less than 48 hours, and was hungry for more. Sarah Manning has had an impressive career so far. She has been an author and journalist for 25 years, has published an overwhelming number of novels and over 20 YA novels under a pseudonym. Her work has been translated into 15 different languages and nominated for numerous writing awards. Sara has contributed to The Guardian, Elle, Grazia, Stylist and Harper's Bazaar, to name a few. As a voracious reader herself, it is no surprise that she has also been a Costa Book Awards judge and is currently the literary editor of Red. I am so pleased to have Sarah joining me today. Welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I I love that we can't count the amount of novels that you've actually published. I feel like that is incredible.
1: But it's I've just, I think it's because, you know, I've been doing it for so long. So it's quantity. I don't know about quality,
0: but I yeah. would, I would argue that it is about, <laughs> it is quality because as I said in the intro, I inhaled the man of her dreams and <laughs> could not put it down. My boyfriend would be like, right, I'm going to sleep now. And I'd be like, yeah, you go. See you later. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just that's something that a writer always really loves to hear. <laughs> I have to ask you our favourite question to start off podcast which is what are you currently reading
1: well i just finished last night because i review my reading is always kind of to a schedule and it's always a few months ahead so just finish this book that's coming out next february Called The Painter's Daughters, which is a debut.
0: I can't remember the author's name. It's ah. okay. I will pu- I will find it out and put it in the show notes.
1: <laughs> but it was really good. I mean, it, it was blurbed by the late Hilary Mantle. So you know that's oh. gonna be sort of like a good book. And it's it's about the painter Thomas Gainsborough's daughters, um, Molly and and Peg. Oh, it's just so good. It's so beautifully written, and it's It's all about their life starting out quite sort of humble in Ipswich and then they move to Bath and finally they move to London. But Molly, the oldest daughter, she has these moments of kind of madness that as she gets older becomes more and more pronounced and it's just sort of something that the family tries to control, especially Peggy, her younger sister, who is kind of like the main character. And it's just... It's just so beautifully written. It's just one of those books where you just think, as a writer myself, how is it that we're both using like the same alphabet and the same (laughs) rules of grammar, but you're doing this amazing thing and I'm just, I'm not. It's such a great book and it's just steeped in so much sort of historical detail, but it doesn't actually ever feel like you're just getting exposition dumps. It's just... You're just sort of right there in these these houses with these girls. And it's such a great portrayal of of sisters, that really difficult relationship you can have with sisters, but also how it is to be sort of a woman in, in a society where all that you can really sort of do is get married and your reputation is everything. And then part of the story is also about their grandmother, who was um worked in a tavern, and she has an affair with a very sort of important something, somebody, and it's kind of, that's, that's I don't want to give too much away. It's just brilliant. It's so good. It's just one of those books that you kind of live in the pages, and then when you're sort of finished, you kind of come back to sort of reality with a bump. I think it's going to be really big next year, and I think if people sort of liked The Miniaturist by Jessie Burton, They'll love this, and it's actually um, edited by Francesca Maine, who discovered Jesse Burton. So I think that's quite a good wow.
0: recommendation. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm completely sold on it, and I am always so blown away by the t- by somebody's debut novel being of such a like high caliber caliber yeah like you know when and we've ran a debut spotlight series on the podcast so we've interviewed a lot of debut novelists and every time I'm like how is this your first book you know they they write as though they've they've been around for so long some of them seem so accomplished already and it's just incredible and so I'm very excited to read that
1: (laughs) yeah I think it's like I said
0: I think it's going to be some of the big books of 2024 Mm. Obviously, as you've said, like you receive quite a lot of you must receive quite a lot of proofs because you're a literary editor at Red and you you're an author as well. So what books have we got to look forward to that you can talk about for next year?
1: Oh, God, The next year is just shaping up to be really, really good. Another book that I read was a book called Green Dot which is another really buzzy book. Have you read yes, that?
0: I have received a proof of it, and we I cannot say any more, actually. <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, it's so good. I mean, I i kind of love a younger woman, older man relationship. It's <laughs> what I both. wrote about in my debut grown-up novel, Unsticky. But this one is set in Australia, and the heroine Hera, she has this really... She has an, a workplace affair, and um, she's only in her mid twenties. I'm a lot older than that, so right away you just know oh, this is just you know, it's 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 not going to end well. And it's just again we're sort of saying about these amazing debut novels, the voice is just so strong and so good. And so funny, but also just can kind of wring your heart out as well. I love those books that one minute you're really sort of laughing and going, oh, that's funny. And the next minute you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I really, really loved that. And then on the on the rom-com tip, because I am a rom-com writer in June, um, Laura Wood, who just writes the most delicious YA novels are very much in the spirit of "I Capture the Castle" or Ava Ibbotson. She's got her first grown-up rom com coming out called "Under, Under a Spell, Under His Spell, Under a Spell," and it's just so. Fantastic. It's really sexy. It's really romantic. And we, I know sort of Laura from sort of Insta, and we both laugh that we both got heroes that are called Theo. Her Theo is so (laughs) sexy. We feel like our our Theos are like brothers from another mother. (laughs) So I think that's going to be, you know, if you just sort of love really good rom coms,
0: then that is definitely one to stick on your pre order list as well. 100%. I, have only this year properly got into rom-coms I felt like I read them a lot more when I was younger and then I think I read too many that were uh I was speaking to a BK Morrison about this the other day and we were saying that it's so some of them can be quite like sickeningly sweet that's the only way I can describe it and it, I found that I was reading too many too many rom-coms that were quite like cringy for me and yeah. didn't feel kind of real and, and what well, didn't feel rooted in reality you know it was too kind of I didn't believe it enough so maybe I was reading some bad ones.
1: <laughs> I really love rom-coms but I am kind of quite it takes it takes a lot for me to really sort of get into a rom com, and I'm I'm yeah. kind of with you. I don't like the ones where the heroines are just a bit too Pollyanna-ish. Mm, yeah, really. I yeah. do like things that are kind of that just feel like they could they could be real yeah so
0: yeah I I I think we are in a golden age of like rom-coms at the moment well it seems to be the case because I've been proven wrong time and time again when I thought I wasn't into rom-coms the last couple of that I've read I've been like oh my god I love it like I inhaled your book and was like okay this is a new favorite like (laughs) (laughs) um so I'm definitely gonna be read is it Laura Wood you said yes yeah so
1: I'll definitely be picking that up she's written like um some YAs but they're sort of YAs at the top end of YAs and three of them are set in the 1930s and they are just so delightful they're sort of um they're just sort of flighty girls who sort of run away from home and have adventures I mean what more do you want I love
0: that (laughs) (laughs) I'm sold okay let's get on to your book because I am burst into chat about it, uh, so the man of her dreams—it is out now, and I am kicking myself because I cannot pronounce your publisher. Is it Hodder and Stoughton?
1: I—I I just go Hodder.
0: I'm—I'm I'm not Hodder. too Hodder and Love
1: Stoughton. That. I don't. I, you know what? I just say Hodder.
0: That makes me feel so much better. (laughs) But it is out now which is very exciting for our listeners and I'll be popping a link to buy it in the show notes. Let's get on to it. Would you like to describe it to our listeners what it's all about?
1: Yeah okay so it's about this girl called, well it's a woman called Esme and she's in her sort of mid-30s. She had a really disastrous marriage when she was too young and that ended acrimoniously and she's you know she's done the dating apps and she's just so over men and so she's one of those people like me like a lot of readers who have really vivid imaginations and at any one time there's kind of like a multiverse fantasy like <laughs> running through her head with supporting characters so she has these sort of fantasy boyfriends. It might be like Harry Styles, it might be, but the one that she keeps coming back to is one that she's kind of invented herself over like many, many sort of years. And it's a really sort of detailed fantasy. And then she's at um a hen night where they're all kind of quite sort of bougie boho girls and they make her do this vision boarding manifestation of her fantasy boyfriend much against her better judgment and then when they come out of the hen night she has an accident and she has to go to um and and at A&E she meets this guy who's been glassed in the face and they just have this amazing connection and he just seems to tick off this list of all the attributes that her fantasy boyfriend that she just manifested has. So it's kind of... And they just... It's like the perfect relationship. They're just really into each other. And and Esme is so sort of flawed and spiky, but Theo is just so open and sort of communicative. I mean, he really is a bit too good to be true. And they just have this really sort of intense relationship. And all the while, Esme is kind of like... Is this is this really happening? And that's something that
0: the reader has to decide too. I, I love it. I loved it so much, and I think that's already quite obvious. I thought that Esme was such a brilliant protagonist, and I could definitely relate to her vivid imagination. Um, is the fantasy boyfriends thing something that you have done in the past? <laughs> Oh my god! Yes, absolutely. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes. I mean, even sort of, you know, even as a a teenager, just you know, sort of writing what I now know to be sort of self-insert fan fiction about (laughs) like guys in in bands. I'm, yeah. I mean, I think anybody that's ever had to sort of of gone on dates with people, men that you've met off the internet. I mean, it's just slim pickings mm-hmm. so you know the men that you can invent in your head are often just so much more thrilling and fulfilling and funnier 100%. than the sort of, yeah the, the sort of men that you meet that are kind of shorter and older and bolder and kind of more inselly than you thought they were
0: <laughs> it, it made me feel seen because I remember having sleepovers with my best friend when I was younger and I would say to her like what what do you think that my boyfriend would be like? What, what do you think my life's going to look like in, in like 15 years? And what do you think my husband's going to look like? And, what, and and we would lie there for hours, just like imagining our future husbands and imagining like these lives that we'd created for ourselves. And <laughs> it just made me think of that so much. And we'd, we'd say like one, one sleepover, it'd be like a guy that we both knew that we both really fancied. And the next time it would be like, I don't know, like Calvin from S Club Juniors. <laughs> oh it was so
1: specific. Like you never imagined in your wildest dreams that you'd meet an amazing
0: man who would build you bookcases. I yes, mean... exactly. I've got very lucky. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I I have got very lucky, but I have also been privy to the the dating apps before I met. My, I met my boyfriend on a dating app which you know I met him on tinder and I was very lucky to have found such a diamond but <laughs> there are a, a fair few on on the dating apps that are not are not great um so I was naturally quite wary about Theo when we first met him because he seems too good to be true yep um and, you know, she is having this back and forth with with herself because she's been manifesting and because she's, she's hurt her head. She's not quite herself when she meets him. And she's like, he seems too good to be true. Why do you think we're so wary of, of men that, that are good?
1: Because I think just, you know, I don't want to sort of be man bashing, but it is. No, just not at all. Kind of- You know, it is, like I said, the pickings are sort of quite slim. And I think also there's that myth of the nice guy, that the guy, Mm -hmm. because I'm a nice guy, you're just like, you know, are you really? It's like when you sort of go on dates and you just think, dude, are you really going to be that cliche? Like, you know, Mm. you're in your 30s and all that you have done is talk about yourself and you haven't asked me a single question. But I think also I'm just... I'm just such a kind of fantasist. I've always just been such a sort of daydreamer that I kind of, the life in my head is just so richly sort of detailed that maybe it's kind of a bit of a curse as well. I mean, it's great as a writer because that has now transitioned into sort of having like four or five plots in my head sort of all running sort of concurrently but um I've always been such a sort of daydreamer they're almost like how can I meet anybody that's ever going to live up to kind of the men that I can
0: create you you literally just said about you normally have four or five plots going in your head at once and I want to stick on that because that fascinates me and and I was wondering because of the amount of novels that you've written are you just constantly inspired or do you ever have to go and seek it out
1: I mean I sometimes you just get this sort of idea that just tugs at you out of sort of nowhere and you're like "Whoa!" and i always i mean at the moment i'm i'm just about to start a second draft of my next sarah manning novel oh my i've got um one of my pseudonymous novels is the one that i'm going to write next so that's kind of going away and and then there's a few sort of like wild things that my agent will probably just be going, no, 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 you're not <laughs> going to write a steamy Regency. No, you're not going to write a, a dark mafia romance and self-publish. <laughs> I and mean, I am kind of waiting for like the next Sarah Manning book to kind of come to me. But I've realised there's no point panicking about it. The ideas always come, even when you least expect an idea to come suddenly they do come so i've just learned not to to sweat that mm-hmm. but i think it is also because you know i've always i've always just had such a sort of rich inner life it's not that surprising to me that i just have these kind of ideas sort of running through my head it's almost like you know when you're you've got like a backup program running in the background on your computer and it's kind of there and it's sort of doing its thing and you're not really sort of paying it much attention but, and with me, there will be sort of like these ideas, and all of a sudden, they all kind of sort of coalesce into, oh yeah, that would make a really sort of good novel.
0: Yeah, I mean, I am completely in awe because <laughs> the the amount of of novels that you've written, you know, I I didn't know I didn't know what to expect. This was my first one of yours, which I'm just so excited to go into your back catalogue. Like, what yeah, is a bit of a backlist? Yeah, but yeah. it's such a treat when you get that. And, and I had this same conversation with Daisy Buchanan when she came on, you know, like when you've not experienced a writer for the first time before and, and you really enjoy them and then you find that they've got so many books for you to get to, it is such a treat. So <laughs> I am going to be ordering a few of yours this evening, oh, I think. So you. yeah, I know I'm really excited. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about Esme and specifically her dynamic with her sister because uh, I am the oldest of four girls and I am always so, I, I love relationship between sisters that's, that's represented in literature. I love, I love to read about it. And I was particularly intrigued by this because it wasn't the dynamic that I have with my sisters. So why did you want to portray Esme, Esme and Allegra's relationship like this? I
1: think just that relationship with sisters can be so, so fraught. It's like sort of mm. best friends as well. It can be sort of like a really sort of difficult relationship, especially when there's a bit of an age gap between them, because there's, I think it's it's 11 years. Yes. And with that, I do just remember, it's just the memories that you dredge up when you're writing. I remember when I started secondary school, My best, my new best friend, she was like 11 and it turned out that her mum had just had a baby. And although she had like younger brothers and sisters, she didn't tell me for six months because she was so embarrassed that her mum had sort of had this, this baby. Like her parents were still sort of doing it. And the whole thing was kind of embarrassing. And she was kind of mean. You know, I'd sort of go around there. And she'd just be sort of kind of mean to like the the little one, and even when we were sort of like grown up an adult, she still just didn't have that great relationship with her her younger sister. it was just sort of like that that hangover and I just thought it was quite sort of interesting that their mother was quite absent. So looking at it as well from Allegra's point of view, that she has this, she's used to being an only child for eleven years, and then she has this little sister foisted on her. And then she's kind of almost expected to sort of to bring her up, mm. you know, and it's not a sort of a nice, amenable sort of little sister in kind of Allegra's image. It's a very sort of difficult sort of very stroppy person that, that Esme is and I just I just sort of I mean I've sort of written a lot of sisters in my books and it is just I think it is just those it's and I've written a lot about sort of mothers and daughters as well because I just think they're such fascinating relationships and there's just so much kind of light and shade sort of in in those dynamics it is just endlessly yes. fascinating to me
0: yeah, totally. And I've said many a time on the podcast that I'm always invested in a mother-daughter dynamic and this was no different. And <laughs> I don't want to give any spoilers. There's a, there's a moment where she can can have a chat with her mum about the way things have been.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's, you know, it's also that thing that you have, you've have grudges and all of a yeah. sudden things
0: come out.
1: So by being with Theo, who who is so open, she she's kind of, you know, she's not holding sort of anything back. I mean, just sometimes you can just have those kind of clear the air sort of blowouts and Mm. it's either like the best thing that's ever happened,
0: (laughs) or it's like we're never talking again. (laughs) Did you did you feel like they were quite harsh on Esme, as in her mother and her sister? I did, but
1: as I kind of wrote it and as I went through different drafts, I mean, Esme as well was kind of quite difficult. I mean, you know, she's quite unusual. She doesn't go to university, which I think is quite interesting, but she has this sort of like amazing career. So, you know, until she has this marriage at, like, 23, it's the first time that she's ever sort of failed at anything. Mm -hmm. So I think when you've got somebody who's really sort of ambitious and she's hit all these kind of, like, amazing sort of milestones quite early, can be sort of quite unbearable. So it's Mm -hmm. quite interesting. Obviously, I'm on Esme's side (laughs) and she's like my girl. But I think part (laughs) of writing a novel that you want it to be real is that you have to sort of appreciate the bad bits of your your characters as well and you know Esme
0: is kind of hard work sometimes yeah I always find it so interesting talking to authors and like finding out how we've read a certain character and then what their feelings are on their characters because I think it's always so different you know our interpretation is going to be different to yours because you've sat with these characters for such a long time and you have thought about each individual character much more than we will so we only see this kind of one side to them whereas you've thought about them as these well-rounded characters and and i you know I at the start of the book I was kind of very much on Esme's side and like they're being so unfair this is like you know they're not being fair to her and then as the book kind of gradually went on I was kind of like oh like I don't know if I'm quite agreeing with what Esme's doing here but (laughs) I think I was mostly on her side I wasn't the biggest fan of her sister but I kind of saw partway through the book where her sister was coming from so
1: <laughs> yeah I think you know I would never also want to write people characters that are sort of holy good or wholly bad because I think we're yeah. all a, a mixture and even if you don't like a character I think it's kind of important to understand that maybe why they are like they are but yeah I mean, totally with with my sort of heroines it is really funny because obviously I love them with all their kind of sort of flaws and things. I'm always a bit offended when, you know, you read a review and they say, oh, I just didn't really she was unlikable. I'm like, what do you mean she was unlikable? <laughs> I mean, I think also if you're used to reading sort of slightly sweeter sort of rom-coms, my sort of heroines can be a bit of a challenge. But even, like, my first novel, Rescue Me for Hodder, my first Hodder novel, Rescue Me, my heroine Margot, I just thought... Oh my god, she's just adorable. And then people just going didn't really like her. I was kind of quite offended. So she is like my most my most sort of perfect like rom com heroine. What do you mean she's unlikable?
0: I love that though. I prefer I much prefer to read flawed characters than a perfect character. So I'm kind of on the side of like if a character is more unlikable, I'm probably gonna enjoy the novel more. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs>
1: I think also, especially in sort of romance, there is kind of slightly that tyranny of like the relatable heroine. Yeah, it's like, um one of the books I did was a modern day adaptation of Vanity Fair called The Rise and Fall of Becky Sharp. And I don't know if you've read you've read Vanity Fair and no shade if no. you haven't. <laughs> but I have, and the whole thing is, you know, Thackeray's famous sort of take on Vanity Fair is it's a novel without a hero. I mean, Becky Sharp is just the most avaricious social climbing sort of piece of, of work. She is a villain, but you absolutely root for her. And I I loved sort of writing character like that. But then my editor was like, could she just do a nice thing here? Like just to warm her up a bit. And it's like, no, because she's Becky Sharp. And Becky Sharp does not do nice things. She's not a warm person and you can understand why she does what she does, you know, and that she doesn't have much choice, but you know, she is meant to be an anti sort of heroine. But it, it is and I don't necessarily want to read about characters that I want to go to the pub with. I mean I've got friends I can go to the pub with them. So <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of interesting to me that sort of in, in the rom com world there can there are a lot of readers that you know do want relatable mm sort of heroines but I mean I I don't think that's a bad thing I think especially coming back to the idea of sort of like fantasy that sort of maybe they want to sort of read that book as as sort of the heroine and experience what the sort of heroine is experiencing Mm -hmm. so maybe that's sort of one of the the reasons why they sort of want a heroine that you know isn't going to be sort of an absolute bitch (laughs)
0: Well, I, I personally loved Esme for all her flaws. And I as I said, I really enjoyed reading about her relationship with a sister and her relationship with a mother. Um, we need to talk about the hen party. Uh, because I mean, your book is so rich with detail. And the the hen party and the WhatsApp groups and the three weddings, that whole it was just no different you know it was so detailed and so brilliantly written and so funny I was a maid of honor this year and organized a hen party and it was not light work and I just found this section so enjoyable uh where <laughs> did the inspiration for uh the hen party and the wedding and her friend Saren Ser- is that how you say it she was Seren, Sarah, but she became Saren yes. yeah where did the inspiration for all of that come from? It was
1: kind of like from my head, really. I mean, real talk. I've only ever been to like one hen weekend. God bless your soul. That is very lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> I've kind of avoided sort of those awful group chats where, like, the bride's saying, you know, nobody's allowed to dye their hair, and you all need to lose like half a stone. You know, it was so I...
0: good. Nobody can exfoliate past this day.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> also, I am kind of fascinated, and I think it is a generational thing because i'm gen x of just how people i know are just so into manifesting and crystals and it's all like hey it's the full moon let's go and bathe out our crystals to recharge them and i'm like really you know <laughs> i think i sort of just grew up a bit more cynical and i am sort of kind of fascinated by my sort of younger friends really sort of buy buy into that and i just sort of think look if that is what floats your boat great but you know i don't I, I don't understand don't it, it. I mean, quite frankly, if manifesting worked, I'd be living a very sort of different life. So I was kind of fascinated by by that. And I'm just always fascinated by just those kind of people that lead a really sort of bougie lifestyle and you never actually kind of really know, like, where is your money coming from? It's something Mm -hmm. that I come back to again and again in my novels. So I just sort of loved that idea of of sarah who was sarah until she sort of went and did a really sort of a bougie sort of traveling abroad to go but you know that she just stayed in like a lovely sort of luxury uh and she never did the backpacking thing that of of course you can say that you're manifesting money but that's just because your trust fund has just gone into like your your private bank account Oh (laughs) and i just i just sort of love those those dynamics i love it when you're sort of like on on reddit and it's kind of like you know am i the uh, asshole and it's like a wedding one because you just know that it's going to be absolute gold so it's just all those sort of different things just and i had such fun sort of writing those scenes and i I wanted the wedding to be like a real set piece it just and just kind of an amalgamation of sort of like all the weddings that you've been to because you know the same things are going to happen Just the best man, if he's not going to be really vulgar, would just do a speech that is just too long. And just being on the singles table at a wedding is just a very special kind of hell. Yeah. yeah, And it's just like, you know, you just think, wow, I thought I was good friends with the bride, but she sat me next to this absolute tosser. You know, what does she (laughs) really think
0: of me? (laughs) no, i I really, really enjoyed reading about the wedding and the hen parties. I just thought it was so good. And I, to be honest, I thought you must have been to many a hen party and many a wedding for the detail of it all because it was just so perfect. And um, so were you having to scroll through like a lot of social media? Content on weddings and hen parties.
1: No, because I think you know we just you, <laughs> you just, just know <laughs> it. you just you just know. It's like I say, you know, it's like you know, am I the asshole? You know <laughs> that I expect sort of all my, all my, all my, especially America. Actually, I mean, at least here you don't have to buy your dress, but like in America where you're expected to just throw down, like you're meant to pay for like your bridesmaid dresses and everything. But I do just sort of find that fascinating because it's that whole kind of princess culture Mm -hmm. thing as well that you know your wedding day is meant to be like your most special day um not always I mean there's a lot of women but there is that whole kind of like wedding industrial complex
0: yeah it's very it's very odd like it's like nothing can go wrong on that day it's so much pressure to put on a person
1: (laughs) It it really is, you know, and I just wonder again, you know, I'm Gen X. I wonder if it's like this is, I didn't grow up with Disney films because we just didn't. We just had the old films, you yeah. know, like Cinderella. So when they started sort of making like A Little Mermaid, I mean, I was already, you know, in my 20s. Tw- but I wonder that people have just grown up with those sort of Disney films yeah. and Say Yes to the dress. You know the the weddings have become such a thing. The best weddings that I've been to—I mean, friends of mine got married at like two weeks' notice, and you know, Camden Registry Office had had sort of like the reception at like her sister-in-law's house, and it was just like the probably the best wedding that I've sort of ever been to, as opposed to sort of those weddings where they just. You just think how much money have you spent here? Yeah, like, literally, I give, I give you two years. I think, yeah, it's like literally in my experience. The more they spent on the wedding, the less likely they have of staying married. Gosh, that's yeah, yeah, cynical, i mean- isn't it?
0: I mean me and Lydia do wang on a bit about class on this podcast uh, because we're both working class which our listeners will probably be like okay we've heard that enough now Um, but I very much enjoy reading about these very bougie types who have too much time and money on their hands and they clearly don't have to work you know multiple kind of jobs in shift work you know they don't have they don't have the sort of worries that the average person would have so I very much enjoyed reading about the fact that she'd had like three weddings and I thought it was just very fun a sense. I mean <laughs> pandemic happened that is true that is true and I wanted to ask as well actually about the pandemic what was that like in including the pandemic in your work? Because I know for a lot of writers, they feel quite exhausted by it, understandably. But how was that for you?
1: It was kind of a conscious decision that I was going to just include the pandemic. Although by the time I sort of came to write it, you know, we, we weren't in a pandemic anymore. But I just feel it's like informed our lives so yeah. much that it would be a cop-out not to include it. It's like if you if you read a book written in the kind of like the early 40s and it didn't mention the war, you'd just be like, what's that about? I just yeah. think, you know, that I write... Novels that I really sort of, that are rooted in reality, so I was gonna sort of mention it and actually it worked out really well because it actually became so the book is actually set kind of as I wrote it so it starts I suppose in sort of um twenty twenty two the beginning of so we still sort of had you know covid rules so if you sort of go to hospital that kind of thing and it did actually become like a really great plot point that when she meets Theo they've both got masks on so they can't actually see each other's faces I just I just sort of felt that I didn't want to go really sort of COVIDy I didn't want to write a COVID novel but I just it has touched our lives it has affected our lives so much and it always will have so Why not put it in a novel? And actually my previous novel, London with Love, which was my pandemic novel, and it's about a couple that meet in the 80s and they sort of, it basically takes them 20 years to sort of realise that they're the loves of each other's lives. I actually did an epilogue that was set very much in the here and now and it was kind of COVID and, you know, this is how our pandemic has been and this is what it's sort of done to our relationship because just it was just probably one of the most g- generation just life-changing things that any of us will ever sort of experience yeah. and as a writer kind of why wouldn't you want to sort of write about that I mean totally, it's just yeah. fascinating to me so yeah. um yeah so I, I did put it in the book and it was actually so helpful and it really sort of like
0: it, it drove the plot in a lot of ways so you know you also have a quite a special story behind the character Lindsay. Would you mind um, touching on that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I think it was actually so it was a charity sort of auction, um, a few sort of years ago that I think was that one was for the vaccine sort of rollout in sort of like de- de- developing world, and I auctioned um, like you can name a character in one of my novels. And the person that won, they wanted um, the character to be named after their sister, Lindsay, who died in 2012. And she'd always wanted to be a writer. And I just was really sort of touched by that. And I just sort of felt I had a real sort of responsibility to kind of celebrate Lindsay. And so my my Lindsay is not, you know, it's very much my own character but one of the things that really sort of moved me about um Lindsay Shepherd was that she was a really sort of she was a real advocate for sort of like animal rescue animals which is a cause really sort of close to my heart so it was sort of really nice to have my sort of character Lindsay also just be sort of someone that was um you know really into sort of animal sort of rescue so it was just like a really sort of nice little nod to that and I've got in touch with them and I sent them off like their a couple you know, a couple of copies of the novel and I had to say I'm really sorry about the saucy bits. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean Lindsay isn't in any of the sort of saucy bits. But I did actually just feel it was a real It was a real honour and a privilege to be able to sort of commemorate somebody sort of like that, and I really sort of wanted to sort of get it right and just. Mm. So yeah, so that's that's the little sort of story
0: behind that. And it's it's such a beautiful thing to do as well. Though I imagine that means an incredible amount to the family to be able to have that. It's so special.
1: I hope hope so. I hope
0: they're happy with it. I really, really do. And I love the character, Lindsay. So I feel like, you know, that they love a good best friend. (laughs) She's great. She's brilliant. Now, we have slightly touched on what you've just said as the saucy bits. But I think we can't really talk about this book without, you know, without talking about the sex scenes because... It's very sexy. It is um, very sexy. Yeah. Very sexy, Sarah. Like <laughs> I was not prepared. They come out of nowhere and I was not expecting it. And I um I actually <laughs> was reading it and sent a picture of one of the pages to my boyfriend. And I was like, wow, this book's just took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> And I was here for it. I enjoyed it very much. Um, how do you go about creating a good sex scene? Well, I love writing sex scenes. <laughs> you
1: can I, tell, <laughs> I love it. Always have done. I mean, when I wrote YA, I mean, my heroines were seventeen. So they would, I would have sex in them. But you know, there's only you have to be sort of mindful that it is a YA. Mm-hmm. Um. So when I wrote my first novel, Unsticky, my first grown up novel, I was like, hey, you know, the training wheels are off. And I wrote so much sex, I had to take a load of the sex scenes out because they were just completely gratuitous and they weren't doing anything. So so I love a sex scene. I just feel like, you know, if you're writing about romance, sex is an important part of that. And if you're you're wanting the readers to be emotionally invested in this kind of relationship that you're writing. How rude to shut the bedroom door on your reader. So I think they're an important part of, sort of writing a romance novel. Also, I just love them. Something that I never sort of shy away from. I, I never sort of dread writing sort of a sex scene. They're mm. just because also they're just so sort of intensely sort of emotional and you can just sort of convey so much within the act of physical lovemaking to quote victoria Wood, (laughs) i love that they're never just about the sex it's kind of sort of quite interesting that the novel that i'm kind of writing at the moment it's got a lot of sex scenes but the sex scenes kind of like run in reverse they start off like just about sex. And by the time sort of the novel ends, they have become so much more than just sort of sex. Mm. So um I think also, do you know what? I kind of I I read a lot of sort of fan fiction when the internet was first invented. And I mean, I've never read sex like you read in fan fiction. I mean, it's just no holds barred. It's just things <laughs> that I, I my little head has never even been able to sort of
0: <laughs> And it's quite intense, and, isn't it? It is quite intense.
1: <laughs> and I was always just sort of so curious, like when I was a kid about sex, and I just mm. sort of like go through my parents, like books to sort of find a bit of sex in them like my dad's James Bond novels and like you know my mum's Mills and Boons I remember when I was about nine or ten reading one of my mum's Mills and Boons and it had the word nape in it he kissed her nape and I was like what is that oh my god what is a nape that just sounds filthy I remember looking it up in the dictionary it's just being quite disappointed it's just the back of her neck so um yeah, I, I love I love sort of writing sexes and I do actually kind of pride myself on making them sexy and kind of selecting sort of the right words and just also just being a bit filthy and a bit messy and a bit chaotic because that is what sex is like. Yeah. And that you might use language when you're having sex that you kind of wouldn't use in in your everyday life and that's kind of all
0: right too yeah completely Uh, they were very good sex scenes and we've spoken about people's sex scenes on the podcast before because we very much enjoy reading them and we've we've also read many a bad sex scene so (laughs) when they're good we're like yes okay (laughs) i would just absolutely
1: like curl up and die if i was ever nominated for like the bad sex (laughs) things that does tend to be like literary novels
0: no, this. The, I mean, your sex scenes were very good, and I. I think it's always so interesting, actually, reading about sex. And I think you had such a point when you said, you know, it's quite rude to shut the door, the bedroom door, on your readers because it says so much about a character and their sort of like interior life, and also the relationship and the dynamic with the person they're having a relationship with. When you read about the kind of sex they're having, I think it says so much. So. Yes, I I very much appreciated oh, well, the ones yeah. that you wrote. <laughs> now I've just seen the time; we are getting to the end of um, our recording. I have obviously loved reading your book, and I will be raving about it and pressing it into the hands of, of many of my friends that love a good rom com. But for our listeners, the Man of Her Dreams is out now, and I, as I said before, I'll be popping a link in the show notes, and it's. As I've said, it's sexy, it's funny, it's, it says a lot about the, the sort of, it's quite zeitgeisty, I would say, you know, it's very much uh, on the money about the way women interact with, interact with each other in modern, in the modern day, you know, we have so much about like hen parties and weddings, but also the way that the sisters interact, the way they interact with their mother I just loved all of the family dynamics in this book. I found them so interesting to read and it is just such a great book. So thank you for for writing it. <laughs> oh thank you so much. That really means a lot because it was actually a
1: hard one to write. I had to do a mammoth rewrite on it which I don't I don't often have to do and I forget how traumatizing they are <laughs> and it was really really sort of traumatic but you know It was just so much a better sort of novel for my editor just saying yeah you're gonna have to sort of like because when an editor wants you to do a rewrite they do sort of try and sort of mitigate how bad it's going to be and saying oh I don't think it's that much work and actually then they have to say yeah actually you need to rewrite the whole book it is a lot of work (laughs) but I do think for somehow you know for, for that process that I had to go through it is sort of like so much a better novel for it and I kind of even though I'm all these novels down the line, you always sort of learn something new about sort of novel writing with every book. So, you know, it was all a learning
0: experience for me too. Yeah. I can imagine. I have told you before we started recording what I'm going to do now. Oh my God. <laughs> it is our December bonus episode. So I have listeners, unfortunately, dragged Sarah, not quite kicking and screaming, I don't think, into doing a Christmas quick fire. Sarah, are you ready? Oh, God, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Firstly, do you celebrate Christmas?
1: Yes. Yes, I do. But I do it in a very kind of me way. Because also, you know, when we say, do I celebrate Christmas? Do I celebrate the birth of Jesus? I do not. Do I celebrate the opening of sort of like the Quality Street tin? Yes, I very much do. You and me both. (laughs) When does Christmas start for you? It starts when my a card order arrives <laughs> <laughs> I think you know I got my priority Christmas booking I think that's coming on the 23rd of December that is very exciting what is a must on your card order well um you know I'm like so many people I love I love the pigs in blankets but also I really I really splurge and I get the really 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 fancy yule log I don't like Christmas pudding Ooh. but um the really fancy Marks & Spencers, Bouche de Noël. That is just sort of like my my favourite thing and I can eke it out for a week. It's gorgeous. just so, mm,
0: yes. Do you put anything with your Yule log? Double cream. Oh, now we're talking. Sorry. Now
1: we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> it takes me about an hour to eat because it's
0: so rich that you have oh, like a spoonful. That sounds incredible. you need to just like process. I feel like I want that for my lunch. <laughs> I was gonna ask you what is your favorite item on a Christmas dinner, but I feel like is it pigs in blankets? Now you've said that
1: pigs in blankets, yeah, because you know, I mean, I like things like roast potatoes, but you can have them with your Sunday exactly. roast. So something that you wouldn't normally have, it probably is just the pigs in blankets, gorgeous, and the sausage meat. I don't do turkey either. Ah. I don't love a turkey. I mean, it's quite a dry meat. So the other thing that I will really spurge on is I will just get like a chicken that has basically spent its life being sort of cosseted and sort of, you know, just sort of living on just the finest chicken feed that money can buy. So, so just whatever you do with turkey, I mean, it's just all and it just lingers forever. Yeah. By like the third day, there's just a certain ripeness to old turkey meat. I mm. just can't. Yeah. So a really lovely organic chicken. Mm, yes.
0: Gorgeous. My, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that because um, me and my boyfriend also have chicken on christmas day and people call us heathens for doing that they're like no it should be turkey i'm like no (laughs) the chicken is delicious thank you very much yes (laughs) (laughs) favorite festive read oh gosh
1: it's probably you know ballet shoes by noel stretfield because i always reread it once a year it's like my favorite book and it just feels like christmas is a really sort of good time i mean some of it is set at, at Christmas I think it's it's Boxing Day where they have sort of like the special sort of stage production that they're doing and it's just one of those books I can just sort of read in an afternoon you know where it's just singed into your memory so it's mm-hmm. not so much reading you just look at the page and it's you you just know it off by heart and it just I just want something sort of really just lovely and comforting and not at all spiky so it's probably ballet Shoes
0: I haven't read that, so I am going to have to get my hands on a copy. <laughs> Christmas music before December, yes or no? Yes, but it is really
1: sort of, um, it is just limited to the Phil Spector Christmas album. And maybe a few blasts of like Mariah Carey, you know, when I'm just trying to sort of <laughs> How close to December are we talking? I mean, I haven't started yet. Have you I not started Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> though I have to say it could be June, and I just need to listen to something that's gonna pet me up and I will
0: stick on all I want for Christmas. I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> okay. Last question. Favorite Christmas film? I
1: hate Christmas films. <gasps> I really just I mean, I really just they're just not good. I mean, it's funny because a couple of years ago I was like watching Love Actually for like god knows how you know the umpteenth time She's thinking actually why are you even watching this this film is is terrible it's just there's just so much objectionable about it same with the holiday it lasts three hours it's just you know how can she come out of the tube and like be living in a little sort of hobbit house down a country lane so i don't really like I mean I'm just trying to think of a good Christmas sort of film and I'm really sort of coming up blank but one thing that I do try and watch in the in the hinterland between Christmas and New Year's Eve is the one true version of Pride and Prejudice which clearly is the BBC adaptation with Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth we will accept no substitutes (laughs) And that is just a really six episodes, Mr. Collins, Alison Stedman as Mrs. Bennett. So that to me always feels quite Christmassy because it's just a really lovely thing to sort of watch when I'm just in a kind of food
0: coma on the sofa. Gorgeous. I'm going to have to watch that this year. <laughs> I am very upset that you don't like Love Actually. It's my favourite. <laughs> it's, I
1: mean, it's just, it's just... It's just really, it's really not. And somebody actually once said to me that all Richard Curtis films, I mean, honestly, if he was planning on sort of like buying up my film rights, I'm just gonna put the kibosh on that. Somebody actually once said to me that all his films can just be summarized as fucking the help. And I was just like, Oh God, God. Oh my God! You are so right,
0: so right. I can't. I'm never gonna get that out of my head now. Never. I mean, I'm glad that I've passed. So true. It's so. True. It's so, it is true. I got. It is so true. She's made true. a point. She's made a point. Although one of my favourite lines in a film is is why have I forgotten the actor's name? That is shocking. Uh, who plays the prime minister in Lovat Oh Britain. Hugh Grant? Bloody hell. Hugh Grant, <laughs> I don't know where my brain went then, but Hugh Grant saying, who do I have to shag around here for a cup of tea and a few biscuits? <laughs> a couple of chocolate digestives is something he says. And I just think it's so good. But yeah, I'm I'm quite sad about Love Actually, but I can be on side with you for the holiday. I saw somebody actually last year had worked out the exact timings between her cottage in the Cotswolds and where she apparently worked. And it was something like a three hour car journey.
1: <laughs> I mean it's just, you know, it's just ridiculous absolutely ridiculous really really is you know yeah. and they just so long I mean I'd much rather if I'm going to watch a long film I'd rather watch like The Sound of Music quite frankly
0: that is absolutely fair and i think that is a lovely note to end on sarah it has been so wonderful chatting to you today thank you so much for coming oh, on from of bookends. it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you so much and again for our listeners the man of her dreams is out now please go buy yourselves a copy and sarah where can my listeners follow you on social media don't be strange
1: <laughs> you can follow me on instagram so it's sarah R A underscore Manning I'm on the I'm on the social media site formerly known as Twitter that we're still all calling Twitter yes. just Sarah Manning I'm also on I mean, we're all just doing like five different social yeah. media sites at the moment. So I'm also <laughs> on Blue Sky as Sarah Manning. And I think I'm on Threads as well. But, I mean, I'm mostly active on Instagram and, and Twitter. And yes, do please
0: come and follow me and say hi. That would be great. Yes, please do. Because I already had a snoop this morning on your Instagram. And you've got many a good book recommendation on there as well. So I am, I'm sure they'll be very pleased to see that. <laughs> oh I hope so but thank you so much again Sarah and thank you listeners for listening bye bye